The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to Stranger Than Fiction, a series of podcasts from Slate and the New America Foundation about the future as seen through the eyes of some of today's best science and speculative fiction writers. I'm your host, Tim Wu, and my guest today is Cory Doctorow, author of Little Brother, Makers, and Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, among other books, and a prolific blogger at Boing Boing. He joins us from London. Welcome to the show, Cory. Thank you very much, Tim. So, Cory, I thought I'd start way at the beginning and um, just ask how much of a role science fiction has had in your life, whether as a child, growing up, and uh, let you take it from there. Well, yeah. I, my dad was a science fiction, fantasy, and comics guy, so I always tell the story of how when I was a kid on long car rides, he'd tell me these stories about Harry, Larry, and Mary, who are this sort of gender-balanced, multi-ethnic group of heroes who it turned out he'd, it, all of their adventures were cribbed from Conan. So he would just retell me these Conan stories, but with these three kids. And so that was kind of my start. And we had lots of science fiction books lying around the house. And uh, in 1977, my dad took me to see Star Wars, which I really think of as more of a fantasy movie than a science fiction movie. But critically, I think it was the first time I was six years old, it was the first time in my life I'd been exposed to really complicated storytelling, storytelling that had multiple points of view and that wasn't entirely linear. This was, of course, in the days before DVDs and before streaming media and when there were really only a couple of terrestrial TV stations. So kids' ability to experience stories that were complicated was pretty constrained. And I found in that story something very exciting that really spoke to me, not so much in the content of the story, but in the form. I, I was really set afire by the idea that stories could have all these intricate moving pieces and not just be a linear tale. And so I went home and got a bunch of paper and, and stapled it up the side and trimmed it to the size of a mass market paperback and just started writing out the Star Wars story over and over again. As best as I could recall it, I, I think of it now as being like a pianist practicing scales over and over again, trying to unpick how those structures worked and, you know, declare more or less on the spot that this is what I wanted to do. I just found it very, very satisfying. And then, Tim, as you know, yeah. uh, we went to the same elementary school. Yeah. And so that school had a lot of um, field trips. And among the field trips we took were to the, what was then called the Spaced Out Library and is now the Merrill Collection, which is um, the largest science fiction reference library in the world. And the head librarian there, Lorna Tulis, just sort of let us have the run of the place. I met Judith Merrill, uh, who's now dead, but who became my mentor and, and was a famous science fiction editor and writer and anthologist. And so it really got good to me and became a real fixture in my life. Toronto also had the, the oldest science fiction bookstore in the world, a, a store called Baca. And, you know, you and I and our gang of friends, we started going down there on the streetcar when I guess I was about 10 years old. And I've really uh, never stopped. Now, Corey, I uh, did know you as a child, and we were friends uh, in uh, grade five, and I would have thought you would have gone into fantasy back then. I mean, we spent hmm. half our time playing Dungeons & Dragons, the other half reading uh, fantasy books, at least as much as uh, science fiction. Was there some point where you, you sort of had a turning point and you said, I'm not going to do fantasy? Because, you know, you can reconstruct the history, it was all science fiction, but I happen to know that there was a lot of, uh, I think, more fantasy back in hmm. our uh, childhood. That's a really good point. I don't draw a very sharp distinction between the two of them, and I still read a lot of fantasy. And, I, you know, last year I published a couple of fantasy stories, including um, one in the Borderlands reboot. I don't know if you read Borderlands, but a lot of us did when we were kids, these books about um, that were kind of contemporary fantasy, the, the real 
jumping off point for urban fantasy um, edited by Terry Windling. I was really glad to write a story set there. I wrote a story about the kid who brings Wikipedia to fairy, which I guess is a science fiction-y kind of fantasy story. Maybe, again, it's my dad's influence. I don't know. It's hard to say. It's hard to reconstruct it. You know, my dad's a policy guy. He's a Marxist. Um, Marxism, first of all, is a kind of futuristic, utopian, technological philosophy anyway. So a lot of the, the reading that I did and a lot of the discussions that we had came through that lens. And I guess... One of the things that being raised by Marxist does is it attunes you to realistic economics, to, to whether or not the worlds that you're reading have anything that look like plausible economics. And there's very, very little fantasy that has satisfying economics. The world building, when it comes to the kind of economic life, is like half an inch deep. There's just far too many lords and not nearly enough vassals you know, slaving in the fields to support them in the lifestyle to which they've become accustomed. There are only a few exceptions. In fact, uh, you know, the, the major one I can think of is Stephen Bruce, who happens to be a Trotskyist and also a very good fantasy writer. The politics in fantasy are, are missing, you say, in some ways. And uh, you, when you think about it, maybe the orcs should have had a union or, or something like that. Or at least an anti-defamation league, <laughs> yes. right? I mean, Christ, that the racism against orcs in the Shire is terrible. <laughs> They kind of merit it. Well, anyway, I'll leave, leave it. Well, there. only only as interpreted through the eyes of the um, of true. the hobbits, right? That, that's a good point. I hadn't quite thought about it that way. And maybe if they'd won the uh, the Middle Kingdom War, we would have had a very different uh, Lord of the Rings. I don't know what it would have been called. The, well, uh, it would have been called the War of eighteen twelve. I mean, as a Canadian American, you know that different sides on the same war can have totally different ideas about how really critical thoroughly documented battles took place, who was on the right side and who was on the wrong side, and even who won and who lost. Right. Something about being a kid that makes you particularly open to science fiction and its ideas. I wonder if that's what you have in mind when you're writing young adult fiction. Well, you know, there's this snotty remark that the golden age of science fiction is 12. Um, <laughs> I think that when I, when I write for young adult audiences, the things that kind of animate me as I do it are maybe two or threefold. Um, the first one is that writing young adult protagonists, regardless of the genre, is really exciting, although science fiction, you know, doubly and triply so. Being a young adult is a state, or being an adolescent, is a state of doing a bunch of things for the very first time, things that you can't predict the outcome of and that could have profound consequences for your life. I mean, and each one of those affects a one-way transformation in your personality and your life story. So, before you've ever told a lie of consequence, you are a different person from the person you are after you've told a lie of consequence. And you can never go back. And before you've told that lie, you can never really know how it's going to come out. Before you've ever sacrificed something that was really important to you for a friend, likewise. It's a change that you go through that you can never go back through. And, you know, some of the neurologists tell us that... Um, an adolescent's ability to appreciate risk is not physiologically developed until they're through adolescence, that it's a slow process that you go through and that you finish off in your 20s. And it makes a certain amount of sense that if your adolescence is the period in which you take a bunch of risks that you can't rationally assess, 
you don't want to have a fully functioning risk assessing brain because um, most of us, when we can't assess the risk altogether well, we tend to err on the side of caution. And if you were an adolescent erring on the side of caution through your whole, whole adolescence, you wouldn't learn anything. You wouldn't stretch yourself. You wouldn't become the adult that you become. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is remembering what it felt like as an adolescent to fall passionately in love with a book. Mm. And I think you probably remember in our yes. little group of friends, there yeah. were books that just we all read them over and over again. We made references to them in our lives and in our conversations. You know, I think of books like uh, Ariel by Stephen Boyett or Dream Park. And it's quite a privilege to write literature for people who are reading you, not just to pass the time, but to winkle out the secret order of the world. Right. I was wondering if you think back, you know, it's been 30, more than 30 years since then. Uh, do you feel that the world has developed differently than we thought it was going to back then? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that science fiction is not a great predictor of the future, but it's an amazing predictor of the present. I think it's often the fact that many years have to go by before we realize exactly how we feel about the present. It's only in hindsight that we can see, you know, what the 60s were about, what the 70s were about, what the 80s were about. And I think what science fiction does is it exposes the the aspirations and the fears of people who are writing it at the time. I think, you know, if you read Mary Shelley, you don't find out a whole lot about the Victorian ideas of animating dead people. But you do find out a whole lot about the Victorian ideas about, say, the mechanistic nature of life, you know, this mm -hmm. clockwork-inspired view of, of how life works. And also this fear that's really deeply uh, a part of the Industrial Revolution, that technology will cease to be our servants and become our master. Right. Let's turn, you know, one of the things that you did, uh, you, I don't think you were the absolute first, but definitely one of the uh, first, was to offer your readers copies of your books completely for free. Yeah, I wasn't the first writer to do it, but I was the first writer to use Creative Commons novels, uh, yes. licenses with a novel. Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, what your thinking was when you first did that and whether you were afraid to, I mean, many authors, for them, their, their book is their treasure. And the idea of just mm -hmm. putting it out there for free seems unthinkable. So, so talk us through some of what your considerations were when you decided to make that, uh, take that step. So where I've netted out is that using Creative Commons licenses to allow people to share electronic copies of my books benefits me in three important ways. And the first one is economic. I think that when you let people download free ebooks, they buy more print books. And certainly that was more important in 2003 when my first novel came out when there weren't a lot of ebooks, but even today, selling print books matters a lot. Um, I also think that they buy more ebooks as well. I think that people are motivated to buy ebooks by not just um, coercion or the inability to get a book without paying for it, but by also by the feeling that they're doing the right thing. You know, it's already the case that if you take any popular book that's on the shelves, you can get it for free on the internet. I give it to you for free and ask you to continue supporting my career. And people, by and large, have been very willing to do that. You know, it's the 21st century. And if you're making art that you don't think people are going to copy, you're not really making contemporary art, because there's not really anything we can do to stop people from copying things they want to copy. And then the final dimension here is the moral dimension. When I was 17, as I'm sure when you were 17, I just copied my ass off. I copied every single thing that mattered to me. We taped CDs. We I don't know if you remember uh, when we were in elementary school, 
I think it was Brian Cox's dad had access to a free photocopier. <laughs> and so we'd buy copies of Asimov's and photocopy them and hand around the best stories because that way we could all share them. And many of us grew up to be Asimov subscribers and in my case, an Asimov's contributor. And it was because we were able to copy them that we did. So for me to say to other people, when I was copying, that was just like legitimate artistic background that people do in their way to a career in the arts. But when you copy, it's theft. To me, that just reeks of hypocrisy. Now, many authors, as I said earlier, are very protective of their work. What would you say to someone who uh, just said, but, it, you know, it's my work product. I, I invested my soul in it. How can I possibly put it out there for free? That, that just seems wrong to me. Well, I guess I would say to them that presuming your work is widely known and, and appreciated enough that people even bother to take it without paying for it, some fraction of your audience is going to take it without paying for it and in an ideal world where you're actually trying to feed your kids instead of merely get indignant, you want to have a path that leads them from being outlaws to being inside the law, to being legitimate customers. And the way you do that is not by shouting at them and telling them that they're dicks, because that's kind of um, something that'll get their back up and, and keep them on the other side and polarize the debate. The way you do that is by appealing to their better nature, by showing that you're a reasonable person who doesn't pretend that he or she never copies. You show them that everybody copies, that it's just part of our lives, and that copying is a feature and not a bug. You act as though you inhabit the same reality as they do and appeal to them to do the right thing. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the copyright policy and where it's going these days. Well, I'd say that you know this stuff, it really worries me. Um, I'm also very optimistic, and those sound like very contradictory ideas. But you know, I'm very worried because I feel like the way that we make copyright policy has not changed in, right. uh, since Napster. I think it's actually probably gotten even worse because the parties involved are so kind of depraved in their indifference to the internet, if not outright hostile to the internet, that the copyright proposals we get today go way beyond anything that was countenanced in the days of Napster. I mean, even when, when Fritz Hollings was proposing trusted computing chips in every computer so that all computers would refuse to copy things if they carried a little flag that said no copying allowed. Even that actually sounds modest to me next to some of the stuff that's coming out of Victoria Espinal and the European Commission and particularly out of WIPO and the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I mean, nobody back then would have said mandatory iPod searches or laptop searches were a legitimate way of solving the copyright problems. Uh, whereas today, you know, that's been a regular feature of plurilateral trade negotiations. So on the one hand, I'm very scared because if we get it wrong, it's going to be really bad because, of course, there is no such thing as copyright anymore. Copyright has become internet policy because everything we do on the internet involves making a copy. And for so long as copyright proponents continue to argue that copyright's dominion is any time a copy is made rather than any time something happens in the entertainment industry, which I think is a much smarter way to think of what, what a legitimate copyright can do, then everything that involves copyright is going to involve the internet. And since everything we do today involves the internet and everything we do tomorrow will require the internet, it tells you that there's no, not only no such thing as copyright policy, there's also no such thing as internet policy. That every time we make a rule regarding copyright, we end up reaching into every corner of every person's life forever. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm very optimistic. And I'm optimistic because it feels to me like the number of people who realize that copyright policy is internet policy and internet policy is policy just keeps going up. 
You'll often hear geeks saying really horrible things about their mothers and their grandmothers when they want to talk about technologically naive people. I don't know why this is. I, I think it's a really unfortunate thing. Both my mother and my grandmother are perfectly technically capable, although my grandmother until recently had very different technological priorities. You know, she's in her 80s and she has a limited number of years left in her life and watching um, progress bars inch their way across a screen is not high in her list of priorities. But, you know, a few years ago when I had a daughter here in London, England, my grandmother in Toronto, Canada realized that the only way she was going to regularly see her great-granddaughter was by figuring out how the internet worked. And then she figured out how the internet worked because she had a really good reason. And now questions about internet policy are questions about her being able to continue to have access to her great-granddaughter in the years she has left on this earth. And so suddenly those policy questions are important and personal and not abstract. And I think that every day we get new people on our side because of that, people for whom the internet has been transformative to their life and for whom the internet is not just a VOD video on demand system. It's not just a way of, you know, that perverts get porn. It's not just a way to waste time. It's not just cat videos. It's how they or someone in their life who's struggling with illness gets support from other people who have that illness. It's how they continue their education or get their primary and secondary education. It's how they do their job. It's all of those things, how they how their president got elected. As that realization continues to dawn in more precincts, I think our side of the fight gets easier. At the same time, the stakes get higher. Yeah. I think one of the things you've spent a lot of time concerned with is the influence of the content industries on the Internet and their natural, almost natural desire to control and handle how things are distributed there. But I wonder if you're also concerned about just the size of the companies, whether Google, Facebook, the concentration we see. When you think, you know, 20 years ago, it was all mostly uh, smaller companies, smaller startups. And today it seems more and more dominated by four or five large companies. I wonder if that's something you've spent time thinking about. I have spent a lot of time thinking about this, although I often come back to an insight I first read in one of your papers, which is that um, really mature industries tend to be better at lobbying than they are at competing with one another because having been around for a really long time, having saturated their markets and having traded executives enough around their, their top precincts, they are essentially all in one big family and they're often in a position where they down tools or, or put down their offensive weapons, stop competing with one another directly, and instead all go to Washington or Brussels or Parliament and uh, lobby for better treatment for their industry as a whole. You know, on the one hand, it's been to all our detriment that the tech industry is not very good at lobbying. But on the other hand, I think it tells you that as far as the tech industry is concerned, these other companies are, in fact, bitter competitors and not kind of a stable, steady state where they've met with the Pope and he's divided up the new world for them. And, you know, Google's going to take this fraction and Apple will take the other. I'm not entirely sure that there isn't room for startups to do really disruptive things. I do think that to the extent that network neutrality is a feature of the Internet, that disruption is much more possible than network where telcos are allowed to collaborate with incumbents to lock new entrants out of the market. You know, when it comes down to it, Corey, I, I notice a, a core function of your thinking is that your aesthetic, perhaps, has a lot to do with what you think actually motivates people. 
And um, when you think about intellectual property, I think you're, you're skeptical of the idea that this, this bounty of property rights is what's motivating actual creators. And I think when you think about authors or, or, or sorry, readers, you're skeptical that you know, the fear of missing out is at least a healthy kind of motivation. So I wonder if you've ever thought about that as being a kind of a central theme in what you do trying to go towards different forms of human motivation as the ones we base our society on. Well, certainly, I think that's a, a big and important piece of what fiction writers do. They try to explain what's happening in other people's heads. That may be the most profound question that any of us asks is what's going on in someone else's head. You know, to the extent that economics is a science, it's the science of what motivates people. And so, you know, economics and fiction are very closely related right. subjects, and not just because a lot of economists are talking bollocks. And yeah, I think you're right. I mean, there's one area where I'm completely baffled, and that's in the um, what goes on in the minds of people who are super snoops, like people running the NSA. So I was at DEF CON, the big hacker convention, and they had a panel with the very high-profile NSA defectors who have been at the forefront of some of the legal action over bulk spying at the NSA. And one of them was describing the circumstances of him leaving the NSA. And, you know, he's describing this dawning realization that his bosses really intended to record all of the communications of all Americans forever well, wow. and to put them in a database and to search that database whenever they had a question about what was going on in America and to search it regularly using automated algorithms. And, you know, he said, I just can't stay here anymore. Later on during the Q&A, the, the first question he got asked was like, but really, why? You know, why does Congress let them do it? Do they blackmail congressmen? You know, have they been listening in on Congress's phone calls and they have all the dirt on them? And the guy said, no, 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 they don't blackmail congressmen. They build giant data centers in congressmen's constituencies that create huge amounts of pork for them. And in return, they get bigger budgets. That's all they want. They just want bigger budgets. It's just they want to control more. So then it was my turn. And I said, I, I mean, is that really true? Do the people who are currently planning to spy and maybe currently are spying on all the communications of all Americans all the time, just doing it as part of a, an empire building exercise in the administrative branch? But at a certain point, you do end up with some kind of narrative that explains the legitimacy of bulk spying. I confess that I have no insight whatsoever into it, and that every answer I've ever heard given by the advocates of bulk spying seems to me to be cynical um, lies. Right. I've never heard anything that struck me as, as what those people tell themselves. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thanks. Nice talking to you too, Tim. I hope we see each other in the spring here in London. I hope so too. I've been talking with science fiction writer, activist, and blogger Cory Doctorow. I'd like to thank our producer, Tori Bosch, our engineer, Chris Wade, and Andre Martinez of the New America Foundation. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. I'm Tim Wu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>